Yay old man. Welcome to another episode of Yay, Nay or Ma, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And it's been a very, very busy few weeks. I'm still working on my super secret side project, which I got struck with inspiration for at the end of last year. I'm now actively working on my Top 10 Films of the Year podcast, and we still have lots of Oscar Beatty type movies being released at the cinemas, and I will be talking about some of them in this episode, including some new works from pretty major directors. I'm also still trying to catch up with all the last stragglers of films I want to see from the end of 2021 but you know i have to draw a line somewhere so i think there's going to be only one or two more films which are technically 2021 films that i will be continuing to review but nevertheless in this episode we have the cinematic films belfast directed by kenneth branagh nightmare alley directed by guillermo del toro a Journal for Jordan, directed by Denzel Washington, and the technically cinematic film, but mostly available through Sky Cinema, the festival darling film Mass. And I also have ticked off one of those last stragglers from 2021, a tiny American indie film called What She Said and that will also be reviewed in this episode. So without further ado, let's get on with today's show. Big Screen Belfast is the latest film written and directed by Sir Kenneth Branagh, one of Britain, and I suppose Ireland's, greatest directors and actors of the late 20th century. He has done so much work on film, in the theatre. He has five Oscar nominations to his name for directing and acting in his film version of Henry V, for adapting the screenplay for his version of Hamlet. He has a Best Supporting Actor nomination for My Week with Marilyn, a nomination I think he thoroughly deserved. And he also has an Oscar nomination for Best Live Action Short as well. And that's only scraping the surface of the long and illustrious career on both stage and screen for Ken Branagh. This latest film, Belfast, is considered one of the heavyweight Oscar contenders. At time of recording, it seems that... The two really, really big Oscar contenders this year are going to be Jane Campion's film, The Power of the Dog, and this film, 
Belfast by Kenneth Branagh. So Belfast has been released here in January 2022 in Oscar season, which means it has actually overtaken Kenneth Branagh's last film, Death on the Nile. By the time Death on the Nile is finally released into UK cinemas next month, it will be over two years since it was supposed to come out in December 2019. Largely this is thanks to the pandemic, but also some rather unsavoury accusations levelled against one of the stars of Death on the Nile, Army Hammer. But I am very intrigued by Kenneth Branagh once again donning the moustache as Hercule Poirot after his star-studied version of Murder on the Orient Express. So yeah, we're going to have two Ken Branagh films in two months, as things stand. But this is the first one because it is considered an Oscar contender, and it is a somewhat autobiographical film for Ken Branagh, documenting a nine-ten-year-old boy growing up in 1969 in the working-class streets of Belfast very much as Ken Branagh did. And the avatar for Sir Kenneth Branagh in this film is young Jude Hill, who lives in working-class Belfast. His father, Jamie Dornan, is more often than not off working as a joiner in England, so he's left living with his long-suffering mother, Catriona Balfe, and his older brother, Louis McCaskey, alongside his grandparents, Dame Judi Dench and Kieran Hines. But this is a very specific time and place, and the troubles are just about to start. So can young Jude Hill survive the troubles? Can his family stay together? And will, as so many Irish people have done before him, he be forced to leave his native land. The very first film I saw in 2019 at the cinema was The Favourite. And as soon as I saw it, I thought, okay, that is, even though this is the first film I've seen in 2019, that is going to end up being one of my top 10 films of the year and indeed it ended up being my number two film of 2019. At the end of 2019, at the Film Bath Festival, I saw Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and again, I instantly thought, that is going to be one of my top ten films of the year, and indeed Portrait of a Lady on Fire was my number one film of 2020. Belfast was the fifth film I saw at the cinema in 2022, and my instant reaction was, that is going to be in my top 10 films of the year, even though it is early January, because I saw it in a preview, and it's only the fifth film I've seen at the cinema this year. I think Belfast is absolutely brilliant. It is an outstanding piece of cinema. What Ken Branagh has managed to do is build a perfect blending, a perfect combination of childlike innocence and whimsy, 
combined with the harsh realities of suddenly being plunged into a war zone. The film opens in black and white and beautiful black and white cinematography. There are only a few splashes of colour in this film, which I'll be getting onto in a minute, but it's black and white cinematography. It's got that halcyon approach of what childhood was like in the past. Working class kids running about on the streets. Young Jude Hill has got a bin lid and a wooden sword and is running about pretending to slay dragons. His mother, Catriona Balf, is on her stoop calling her kids, Jude Hill and Louis McCaskey, in from the streets for their tea. It's the idea of an idealised childhood which is being presented here. But there is a very specific date which is attached to this scene. I believe it's the 16th of August 1969, the very start of the Troubles, as suddenly in this halcyon scenario with kids running about on the streets and playing, men with bricks and firebombs show up and start attacking the Catholic families in this mixed residence street. These Catholics shouldn't be in our area. And suddenly, Catriona Balf is having to use this bin lid to protect her and her children from bricks which are being thrown at them, despite the fact that they're the Protestants, and it is Protestants who are attacking, but they are attacking the Catholic families in this street. As somebody says in a scene a few moments later, there didn't used to be an our side and a their side, but suddenly there is, and how do you deal with it? I mean, overnight, this nine, ten-year-old boy, Jude Hill, is suddenly living in a war zone. There are barricades at either end of this small working-class street in Belfast. The Catholic families, who have always been neighbours and friends, I mean, no issues whatsoever, suddenly they're the enemy, and they are under heavy pressure to simply leave this, quote-unquote, Protestant area. And how are you going to deal with this? Particularly when Jude Hill's dad, Jamie Dornan, is away in England working and is only ever back for the weekends and not always then. I mean, Catriona Balf is trying her best to raise her two sons with the help of her mother and father in law, Judy Dench and Kieran Hines. You know, the twinkly-eyed grandparents who help out when they can and give not always encouraging inv- advice to young Jude Hill. It's a tough situation to fi- suddenly find yourself in. And when Jamie Dornan does come back, he is surrounded by hard-eyed men with violence on their mind, basically saying, you're either with us or against us. And Jamie Dornan wants absolutely nothing to do with this. He is not interested in sectarian politics at all. He just wants to keep his head down and go and work. And he's sometimes not always 
good about that. I mean, he has issues with the tax man. He has mild issues with gambling. I mean, it's not, doesn't seem to be, uh, you know, troublesome or addictive, but he likes a flutter. So Katrina Balfe is always, always struggling for money and essentially raising two boisterous kids, two boisterous sons on her own. With as much help as Kieran Hines and Judy Dench can provide. So it's suddenly a really, really difficult situation. But all of this is shown from a child's point of view. Virtually every scene in this film is from young Jude Hill's point of view. There are a couple of exceptions, but almost all of it is from the child's perspective working out for himself the things which are problematic around him, overhearing the adults discussing their financial difficulties and the fact that Jamie Dornan's always away in England, not entirely understanding it, but overhearing it. But he knows that you know this is a very dangerous situation. He suddenly he has to walk past barricades in order to get to school. But, I mean, he's still, you know, a nine, ten-year-old boy. So what's mostly on his mind is his first crush on one of his little classmates. And his aim is to be good at his lessons so he can sit nearer the teacher and be next to this little girl he has a crush on, played by Olive Tennant. That's all he's concerned about, and doing a school project with her about the moon landings, which have only just happened, and getting not entirely helpful advice from his grandfather, Kieran Hines. That's really all he cares about, but he knows that big changes are afoot. I mean, not only are there men with violence in their eyes stalking down his street, but he starts overhearing conversations that maybe Jamie Dornan wants to move away from Belfast, something which Catriona Balfe is not interested in at all. Belfast is all she's ever known. She doesn't want to run away from her friends, her family, everything she's ever known, and be an outsider in London or Vancouver or Sydney or wherever Jamie Dornan wants to move. His family... She has very good reasons for staying, and Jamie Dornan has very good reasons for wanting to leave. And this back and forth, this push and pull, is part of what the adults are talking about as Jude Hill goes about his daily halcyon existence. And that balance that Kenneth Branagh manages to put in this film, I think, is perfectly pitched. This is a film which allows for that childhood innocence and wonder, as well as examining the Irish experience. I mean, there's even a a line of dialogue towards the end of the film. I mean, it is the destiny of so many Irish people to leave Ireland because there is just no opportunities, particularly when there's so much violence on the streets of Belfast at the end of 1969, the beginning of 1970. And seeing young Jude Hill work his way through this, what is the difference between a Catholic and a Protestant, and getting misinformation from a slightly older cousin, 
and being encouraged into mischief by an older girl who I think is also a cousin played by Lara McDonnell, who was actually also in Kenneth Branagh's Artemis Fowl. But guessing this misinformation and starting to have this you know, us versus them mentality from this older cousin, Lara McDonnell, and she doesn't fully understand it either. But learning and growing and observing the troubles from the ground up as they're starting. I mean, going to a Protestant church and having this hellfire preacher put ideas into his mind and having the sectarian attitude put in his mind from there as well. But through a child's eyes, we see the absurdity of religion and going instantly from this hellfire preaching, you know, will you go on the path of righteousness or will you go on the twisting path of damnation and now give us some money? I mean, that kind of thing. But having these moments of the adult world impinging on this youthful life, it's brilliantly portrayed. And having a couple of Easter eggs for Ken Branagh's life at the Christmas period, which is towards the end of this film, he gets an Agatha Christie book as one of his presents. At another point, we see him reading a Thor comic, both of which I thought were were nice touches. But what we really see here is the starts of something special, because this is a film entirely in black and white, with a few exceptions. Whenever Kenneth Branagh and his family, or Jude Hill and his family, go to the cinema, the films are in colour. We see A Thousand Years BC with Raquel Welsh in the fur bikini. We see Chitty Chitty Bang Bang in colour on the cinema screen, and we see the wonder in young Jude Hill's eyes, and you know, we, we know where this is leading. But interestingly, Judy Dench takes her grandson Jude Hill to the theatre, and there too, the theatre performance is in colour. One of the actors on stage is the late John Sessions, you know, one of Kenneth Branagh's friends, but yeah, I thought that was a really interesting moment, that even the theatre performance is in colour, so we know exactly what Ken Branner is getting at, and it works really, really well. I mean, as all of this film works incredibly well, I loved this film, I really, really did. I fully anticipate it being one of my top ten films of the year. It's almost certainly going to be my pick for best film at the Oscars this year, even though I think the actual winner is probably going to be Jane Campion's Power of the Dog, which is a fine film and it will be a worthy winner. But for me, Belfast is outstanding. The mixture of the childlike wonder and the harsh political climate is, in my mind, perfectly pitched, perfectly balanced. And this film ends up, in my mind, being exceptional. And for me, Belfast, available in cinemas now, is an unqualified, passionate yay. Next up, we have Nightmare Alley. 
the new film from Guillermo del Toro. This is based on a successful novel from the 1940s by William Lindsay Gresham, which has already once been adapted into a successful film noir in 1947, very soon after the book's publication, starring Tyrone Power. But Guillermo del Toro decided that this was the latest film he wanted to make and is dripping with Guillermo del Toro's gothic style. It tells the story of a man played by Bradley Cooper who we see apparently covering up a crime in the opening shots of the film and therefore he needs somewhere to escape to, to hide it. So he ends up working in a travelling carnival run by Willem Dafoe with the assistance of people like Ron Perlman, because, of course, Ron Perlman's going to be in a Guillermo del Toro film. But Bradley Cooper starts assisting in a mentalism act, which is run by Toni Collette, alongside her terminally alcoholic husband, David Strathairn. With David Strathairn usually so drunk he misses his cues, gradually Tony Collette starts teaching Bradley Cooper this mentalism act, using cold reading to work out what people want to know, what kind of person they are, and giving them messages from beyond the grave. And Bradley Cooper discovers he has an aptitude for this, he is very good at cold reading and gradually takes over the act, which is particularly helped when David Strathairn, and it's ambiguous whether this was deliberate or not, Bradley Cooper gives David Strathairn some wood alcohol, some methanol, and he dies of it. So Bradley Cooper decides this is the time to leave this carnival. And he propositions the somewhat naive Carney girl played by Rooney Mara, and they run off together and start doing a mentalism double act in the nightclubs of New York. And one night, this mentalism act is witnessed by psychologist Kate Blanchett. And Bradley Cooper starts working alongside the somewhat unscrupulous Kate Blanchett to manipulate rich people into giving them their money. And one of these rich people is the incredibly wealthy Richard Jenkins. So Bradley Cooper and Kate Blanchett start working together to scam money out of Richard Jenkins pushing the unfortunate Rooney Mara to the side, but there will be consequences. So when I was seeing the trailers for this film, Nightmare Alley, I was completely unaware that it had already been turned into a film noir. I was completely unaware of the original author of the novel, and the novel itself indeed. The only passing thing I knew about the author of the novel, William Lindsay Gresham, is that it was his 
estranged wife who was the female half of the C.S. Lewis story Shadowlands. But yeah, I was completely unaware of the novel. So when I was looking at the trailer, what it seemed to me was one of Guillermo del Toro's monster movies. I mean, there were certainly hints here and there of the trailer. I mean, and when you're talking about Guillermo del Toro film, that's not the worst way to market it. Because we have these, you know, sideshow oddities and freaks. And the whole part of the carny world. And apparently the original author, William Lindsay Gresham, learns about the carny life when he worked with a carney or fought with a carney in the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s. So he wrote this story about the carny life and basically how everybody in a carney is a sociopath. I mean, that is ultimately what it comes down to. There's one particular speech that Willem Dafoe gives which highlights just how morally bankrupt a carney is. I mean, the implication is that carney equals total sociopath. And that is essentially what Willem Dafoe does in this film, even though he isn't actually in it that much. But what we really have here is a character study, a rise and fall of this con man. I mean, I went into this film expecting a monster movie of some description but really what this is for the majority of the film's running time is a con movie it's a film about the grift it's a film about this manipulative mildly dangerous man learning these skills and maybe this is the type of person who shouldn't be learning these cold reading mentalism skills the very opening scene of this film is Bradley Cooper covering up a dead body. The implication being he has done something terrible. So right from the very, very start of the film, we know that Bradley Cooper is not a good guy. We can see him worming his way into the affections of the somewhat naive Rooney Mara. We can see him manipulating his way into the relationship between Tony Collette and David Strathairn. Was it an accident that David Strathairn died? It's very, very much open for debate. So getting his hands on these mentalism skills and the code that David Strathairn and Tony Clark worked out years ago, and then using it to manipulate rich people in New York with the assistance of the unscrupulous psychologist, Kate Blanchett. I mean, basically, it's a con movie come film noir. I was already starting to think of this film as a film noir even before I came home and did the research and realised, oh, it's already a film noir. It's already been turned into a film noir in 1947. When Kate Blanchett shows up on screen, she is shot exactly like a femme fatale in a film noir. She may as well be Veronica Lake with you know, the shadows and the beautiful waving long blonde hair. Almost every scene that Kate Blanchett is in is she is surrounded by beautiful art deco, architecture and production design. 
the look and feel of this film, which is set in the late 1930s into the early 1940s, is pristine. Kate Blanchett is working herself up to the rafters as a femme fatale. And for most of the film, I was thinking, okay, yeah, she's kind of like a femme fatale in a con movie. But by the end of the film, it is definitively a film noir and an excellent film noir. Because this is a film noir which has been made in 2020 or 2021. You know, it was delayed because of the pandemic. But it is a 21st century production of a film noir. And therefore, the psychological richness, the psychological truth of it, the motivations that people have behind this film is much deeper and much richer. When Kate Blanchett's motivations for what she is doing are revealed towards the end of the film, it is absolutely devastating. And quite honestly, it's something I don't think I've ever seen in a film noir. But because this is made in the 21st century, you accept it, you understand it, and it works amazingly well. And the way that Kate Blanchett is shot, I mean, every scene she's in, particularly the scenes in her beautiful Art Deco psychotherapist office, the shadows, the lighting, all of it makes her basically look like Veronica Lake. And, and there's no mistake, in my opinion, that she looks like Veronica Lake. It's deliberately trying to evoke that, but also has the pathos that is necessary. I mean, there's a subplot involving Mary Steenburgen as one of the people that Bradley Cooper does his mentalism act for, you know, reconnecting Mary Steenburgen with her son who died in the Great War. And that subplot is beautifully pitched and shows every aspect of this situation. I mean, as far as Bradley Cooper's concerned, if he wants to read people and make them feel better about themselves, maybe occasionally he will go too far, but he's making people feel better, isn't he? And that's the way he justifies it to himself. And making more and more money and paying less and less attention to his eventual wife, Rooney Mara. It's really, really well pitched. And I think this turns into one of the best noir films. I mean, a, a film which is specifically designed to be a noir film. It's one of the best ones I've seen in years. And it also has these con man aspects to it and the psychological richness and the psychological depth. And I think it really, really works. I'm... In general, I am a huge fan of Guillermo del Toro. I mean, he has made one or two missteps, but in general, I love the work of Guillermo del Toro. And this is right up there with what I consider some of his best films, or certainly some of his best English language films. I mean, I, I think Pan's Labyrinth and The Devil's Backbone are possibly his greatest works. But as far as the English-speaking world is concerned, I think this is the best thing Guillermo del Toro's done in quite some time. I think I might even prefer it over The Shape of Water. And yeah, this is a very, very impressive film. And for me, Nightmare Alley is a definite yay.
Next, we have A Journal for Jordan, the latest film directed by Denzel Washington, which is basically the only reason I made the effort to go and see this. I mean, I think it is listed on the gold derby lists of Oscar potential purely because it is directed by Denzel Washington, because the plotline seems a little bit sappy, to be quite honest. It is based on a memoir which is based on the true life story of a woman whose husband went away to war and wrote a journal intended for his at the time unborn son to teach him how to be a man, how to live your life as a black man in modern America, that kind of thing. And in the film, this woman is played by Shantae Adams and her boyfriend slash fiance is played by Michael B. Jordan, who writes this journal for his son, which then got turned into a book. And yeah, that's basically it. The primary reaction I have, having seen A Journal for Jordan, is that I am just baffled that Denzel Washington chose this to be his next directorial effort. And I'm also kind of surprised that Michael B. Jordan's in it as well. I mean, Michael B. Jordan is a phenomenal actor, and here he is making a film which, in my mind, would fit much more comfortably on something like the Lifetime channel or the Hallmark channel. It's that kind of sappy, romanticised, tragic story. The fact I only ever got to see my son once before I died fighting for my country. I mean, Shantae Adams has a military father, a very, very strict, very controlling father who has a flag constantly on his front lawn. And Shantae Adams is determined that uh, you know, I, I am not going to end up like my mother with this philandering, authoritarian husband. But of course, she marries a soldier. Women marry their fathers in a lot of ways, or, or they often do. So you know, I am not going to go into the military, and then she goes off with a soldier. And the relationship they have, because... Shantae Adams is a writer for the New York Times, and I'll be getting back to that in a minute, but because Shantae Adams is working in New York, and more often than not, Michael B. Jordan is stationed in Tennessee or Texas at these military bases, for a lot of the film, it's a long-distance relationship. And I, I guess that's a little bit different from the typical pattern of these romantic-type movies, but still... It's a long-distance relationship. It's a relationship which has question marks over it because it's made very, very clear right from the start that as far as Michael B. Jordan is concerned, the military will always come first to the extent that Michael B. Jordan is deployed overseas and doesn't request temporary leave to go back for the birth of his son. He cannot leave his men behind. So, yeah, it, it, it's this very authoritarian, very militaristic attitude. Uh, yet he is writing this journal. 
And in the grand scheme of things, I think even the conceit of this film is somewhat confusing because the journal itself doesn't actually contribute that much to the film. I mean, yes, it is done in a back-and-forth flashback structure as Shantae Adams is working as a single mother for the New York Times. I mean, one of the few really pointed moments of this film is when Shantae Adams is going in to the New York Times as a black female single mother journalist and a young white guy tries to steal her story and is basically getting away with it because he's young and white and a man. And at the end of that scene, it's apparent that Shante Adams is leaking milk. So this white guy is taking the job of a black single mother. And yeah, that is one of the opening scenes of the film. So we know, you know the situation we are getting to. And as the film progresses, we have Jordan, the baby, the, the son, growing up from one year old to about 12-ish years old. And at various points, flashbacks get back. You know, this, this thing in the present day is reminding me of my relationship, you know, 10-odd years ago with Michael B. Jordan. So that's the structure of it. And we get to see you know, the consequences of you know, being a single mother, having a partner who died in combat. I mean, they never officially married. But you know, having a fiancé who died in combat and the consequences of what that means back at home. And, and it's pretty standard stuff. And the journal does become relevant because, you know, the... The boy, when he is about 12 years old, his mother gives him the journal and says, you know, these are the thoughts that your father had. You are old enough now to read this. And he starts reading the journal and he starts constantly reading the journal. But in terms of the filmmaking, the actual physical journal doesn't have a great deal of impact into the story. So what's the purpose of this film and i think the only purpose of this film and the, and the only purpose of the original memoir on which this film is based is to tell a pretty standard story and the only reason that it worked its way into the real world is because the real life person that shante adams is portraying on screen, Dana Kennedy, worked for the New York Times. She was a professional writer. So she wrote this memoir, and because she already was a journalist, she got it published. And that seems to be the only reason why this story, this memoir, is out there at all. It kind of reminds me of that film from about a year ago, Our Friend, with Jason Segel, Casey Affleck and Dakota Johnson, with Dakota Johnson, a young mother with terminal cancer, and her and her husband can't cope, so their best friend, Jason Siegel, essentially moves in with them for over a year as he is helping his best friend 
Casey Affleck through Dakota Johnson's death, essentially. And yes, it's a tragic story, but the only reason that anybody ever knows about it is because Casey Affleck was a journalist and managed to get the story published, and therefore made a film about it. I mean, that's the realm we're in. These, yes, are true stories, they are tragic stories, but I think they're also very personal stories. Do we need to see this? Do we need to know this? I'm not sure we do. I think this is the kind of story which I guess possibly might help people through going through somewhat similar things, but is it actually worth telling this story? Maybe this is a personal thing, but as far as I'm concerned, it is not. I don't understand why Denzel Washington directed this. I don't understand why Michael B. Jordan starred in it. It's a pretty basic story, and there's nothing really that stands out about it, not even the journal itself. So, yeah, I just don't think this film was worth it. I don't think it deserved to be made. I certainly don't think it deserved to get a cinematic release. It feels much more akin to something you would see on the Hallmark Channel or the Lifetime Network. It's it's nothing. It made so little impression on me. I mean, yes, Shante Adams and Michael B. Jordan are good. On the rare occasions they're actually on the screen together, they have exceptional chemistry. I do like the fact that there is a gratuitous butt shot of Michael B. Jordan, but not of Shantae Adams. So that's redressing historical balances a little bit. But this is a very standard, very sappy, tragic romance. In places, it also has some very, very old-fashioned war movie cliches. I mean, when we actually get to the point where Michael B. Jordan dies in combat... That scene has so many cliches in it, it may as well have been in a Simpsons episode. It's it's just not very good. I don't think this is a terrible film. Michael B. Jordan and Shante Adams are good in it, but there's just nothing to recommend it. So, this isn't a particularly passionate nay, but it is a nay nonetheless. I just don't think that a journal for Jordan is worth it. Next, we have Mass, a film which is the debut of writer-director Fran Krantz, who, as far as I'm concerned, is much better known as one of the people who frequently shows up in the Whedonverse. He was one of the series regulars on Dollhouse as the geek guy. He was also in Cabin in the Woods and various other Joss Whedon properties. But he has now stepped behind the camera and also written this film in a very low-key way on a very hot-button issue. Mass tells the story of two couples, Martha Plimpton and Jason Isaacs, and Anne Dowd and Reed Bierney, 
who are meeting up together in a tiny church hall in the middle of nowhere. This was filmed in Idaho, but it's never actually said where it is. But these two couples are meeting together to discuss a mutual tragedy in their past. Six years ago, a mass school shooting happened, where the son of Reed Birney and Anne Dowd killed ten people, including the son of Martha Plimpton and Jason Isaacs. And now, six years later, they have decided that possibly it will help the healing process if we sat down and talked about this. So that's what they do for close to two hours. It's basically four people in a room talking for the overwhelming majority of this 110-minute film. And, yeah, it's extraordinary. I mean, I, as I have said over the course of this podcast, I am a fan of these small-scale films which are just about talking. I mean, usually it's just two people talking with each other, but here we have four people just sitting down and talking to each other. And going through the ins and the outs of this tragedy in the past and the anger and the rage and the recrimination. I mean, one of Jason Isaac's repeated mantras to and Alden Reed Birney is, you must have known something. Why didn't you do anything? And Reed Birney and Anne Dowd repeatedly say, yes, we were worried, but we had no idea that this was coming. And yeah, you can see both sides of the argument. And it's a situation where, you know, this is six years past the actual tragedy. So they've got so much hindsight and so much contact. They've got so much research which has been done. I mean, Jason Isaacs, it seems, has turned himself into an activist about gun control. So he's got all these facts and figures which, quite honestly, don't actually help the situation very much. It's the personal stories which are most valuable in this situation. Initially, Martha Plimpton is completely disengaged from this process. She doesn't seem to really want to be there, but I I think she sees it as something she has to do. And gradually, over the course of this sort of close to two hours, people open up and their true perspectives come through. And examining the regrets, examining the things that should have been done, you know, six years down the line with perfect hindsight. I mean, you can see now that, well, that was a red flag and it wasn't dealt with properly. That was a red flag and it wasn't dealt with properly. But the ultimate question is, I mean, when you love your children, things get missed. When you try to understand your child, when you try to comfort your child, you are willing to do a certain level of mental gymnastics in order to make it okay. And Alden Reed Burney certainly did what they could or what they thought was enough. It clearly wasn't enough. They knew their son was disturbed. But 
you can see their perspective. And gradually over the course of the film, I think Jason Isaacs and Martha Plimpton also see their perspective. And this is a lot a film about blame. It's a lot a film about guilt. And is there any blame to go around? I mean, there's sure as hell some guilt to go around, but is there any blame to go around? And I think that's a really interesting thing to explore. Albeit, occasionally, it is explored in a little bit of a clunky way. I did like this film, but I can't say I loved Mass, because I think occasionally it can get a little polemical. Jason Isaacs does have all these facts and figures. I mean, this is years after all the court cases have been done, all the civil action has been done all the research has been done. So he's got all these facts at his fingertips. And through the discussion of this one particular fictional case, I think Frank Krantz is trying to have a wider discussion about mass shootings in general. And that does come through in the script. Frank Krantz occasionally can't help himself but make a political point about gun control about the way mass shootings are portrayed in the media and in the courts. It does get a little bit didactic in places, so I think that reduces it a little bit from what I was hoping. I was hoping this was a film that was going to absolutely blow me away, because it felt right down my alley. I mean, as I've said many times in this podcast, I love Anne Dowd. I think she should have got an Oscar nomination years ago for the film Compliance, a film that was so small that Anne Dowd herself financed her own Oscar campaign instead of the usual practice, which is the film company financing an Oscar campaign, you know, sending out DVD screeners. Anne Dowd did that herself for Compliance and wasn't successful, but since then has got on to great success in The Handmaid's Tale. So I love Anne Dowd. I love Jason Isaacs. Reed Birney, I'm not very familiar with, but he was fantastic in the 40-year-old version. And honestly, I have not seen Martha Plimpton for years, but I've always been very, very impressed with her. So yeah, the cast really, really intrigued me, and this concept really, really intrigued me. And I was hoping it would blow me away, and it didn't quite get there. But I think the discussions that are had, the acting that is had, and the setup. I mean, I found it interesting that a good 20 minutes at the start of this film is the lead up to this meeting in this tiny, tiny church hall, in a tiny Episcopalian church in the middle of Idaho. It's the grief counsellor who's been in contact with both Martha Plimpton and Anne Dowd, and the officious church lady who runs the hall. You know, she's cleaning up after the Alcoholics Anonymous meeting in the morning. You know, the church is being used for to give piano lessons, and you know, a little girl is playing something which I think was supposed to be America the Beautiful, which. I think is a deliberate choice of tune, but it's being played so badly I couldn't actually tell if that was actually what was being played. It just sounded like it. So, you know, this is a tiny, homely little church, 
and this devastating discussion is about to be had in it. And people are, from their own perspectives, trying to make it as safe and as comfortable as possible. I mean, this is you know, an awkward situation. So, you know, the church lady has put out tons of snacks for this meeting, which, you know, that just doesn't, isn't going to work. The grief counsellor is, you know, rearranging the furniture as far as she thinks it should be arranged. And, and everybody has their own opinions as to what this meeting should look like. And the opinions that are had are not by the people who are actually going to have the meeting. And I think that in and of itself is another statement. The the people who know about this but didn't experience it have their own opinions about the incident and about how it should look, how it should work. And I think spending 20 minutes doing that at the beginning of the film is an interesting way of doing it. I mean, to me, in a weird way, it, it kind of builds up the tension until you know, these four people will sit down and discuss and argue with each other. It's fascinating, this tiny little church being the venue for such a weighty discussion. And yeah, it, it is interesting. So, yes, I think Mass is very, very good, but I can't say I think it was great. It is available in a limited cinematic release, but you will mostly be able to find it on Sky Cinema. And for me, Mass was a high Mass. Home Movies. What She Said is a small-scale American indie film which has been released here in the UK on streaming platforms. And it stars Jenny Lester as a young woman who is hiding away in her family's remote cabin at around the Thanksgiving period. She wants to get away from it all because the following week is the start, the long-delayed start, of her rape trial. And she doesn't seem to be dealing with this particularly well even going so far as to suggest she might even be planning to drop the charges against her rapist because she just can't face going to court. Once her brother, Brit Michael Gordon, hears this, he instantly heads up to this remote cabin and drags all their friends and family with him. Jenny Lester and Britt Michael Gordon's sister, Jurielle Uter, Britt Michael Gordon's wife, Juliana Geranus, and various other friends and family, in order to essentially perform an intervention on Jenny Lester, all her friends and family gathering around her, insisting that she pursue this rape trial, which is not necessarily something that Jenny Lester is comfortable with. So, in this few days over the Thanksgiving period, can Jenny Lester be persuaded to continue pursuing her rape case? 
or will the mostly well-meaning interference from her friends and family get in the way? This is filmmaking on the micro-budget scale. Jenny Lester not only is the lead of this film, she also wrote the film. She also produced the film alongside the actress who plays her sister-in-law, Juliana Geranus. Juliana Geranus is also the editor of this film. And the director, Amy Northrup, this is the first thing she's ever directed. And most of her credits on IMDb for Amy Northrup are as an intimacy coordinator. I'm not sure how you get that gig, but I suppose it's a good thing that it is such a common job on film sets nowadays to have somebody there to make sure everybody's comfortable with the sex scenes. But regardless, Amy Northrop is mostly an intimacy coordinator, and yet she's directing this film, which is just a group of people in one location for a few days and let's just go out there and make a film. And that's what they did. I think the issues that this film brings up are powerful, they are palpable. The traumas that Jenny Lester is going through, can she actually face going to court and talking about these things, these horrendous things which happened to her about a year ago? She's clearly not okay. You know, she says she's working on her dissertation, her dissertation in linguistics, which is actually kind of interesting. The, the opening voiceover is a fascinating discussion on the word should, which I never really considered before. But yeah, that's, that was an interesting thing. So she's working on her linguistics dissertation, or that's what she claims she's doing. But Mostly she's just moping about depressed. I mean, for understandable reasons. She wants to be alone. She wants to be depressed. And yet her brother has come up with half a dozen other people and is basically trying to make it all about him. I mean, this brother character, played by Britt Michael Gordon, is a very interesting aspect of this film. He is so determined that his sister is going to pursue this. His sister is going to get justice. He's railroading everybody around him, you know, organising this intervention. I mean, most of the people who show up at this cabin don't even realise that's what's happening. They just think that the location for their friends giving has been changed. So when suddenly they're in the middle of an intervention for this rape victim, not everybody is comfortable with it for understandable reasons. But the brother is so determined that justice will be served, that he needs to talk about this. He needs to persuade his sister to aggressively pursue this. He's basically making it all about himself. There's a subplot involving the fact that he's been essentially stalking the guy who raped his sister. And the implication is, the heavy implication is, that if the court case doesn't go the way he wants it to, he's going to take things into his own hands. And the anger that he is showing is 
clear to see. I mean, to the extent that he doesn't let his wife, Juliana Duranus, go out alone. He insists that when Juliana Duranus goes to the store, she takes somebody with her. And you can see, you can read between the lines, you can see what that means. I mean, his intensity is his way of reacting to it. I mean, his anger is part of this whole thing. Jenny Lester's best friend and her fiancé feel an enormous amount of guilt about what happened to Jenny Lester because the rape happened or, you know, Jenny Lester met this guy who raped her at their engagement party. So they're kind of stuck in limbo. I mean, can we and should we go on with this wedding? I mean, yes, we do have this relationship. We we are engaged to each other, but can we live with, with what happened at our engagement party? Uh, and yeah, all the different aspects are brought up about this and different aspects I and mean, the way that different people react to it. I mean, the fact that Jenny Lester and her siblings are Jewish actually becomes relevant because they get a phone call from their very, very Jewish mother. And Jenny Lester, the way that her Jewish mother is reacting to this situation is not helpful in the slightest. I mean, very Jewish mother cliches. I mean, the, the fact that Jenny Lester wrote it, I guess it's okay, but very, very heavy Jewish mother cliches. Seeing how everybody reacts, how things have fundamentally changed due to this traumatic incident. At one point, the phrase, we are here for you, gets brought up. And in context and the way it is shot, the way that, that Jenny Lester reacts to it, it is clear that the meaning behind that is not, we are here for you. It is, we are here for ourselves. We are here to try and make ourselves feel better. And it's somewhat incidental whether or not Jenny Lester pursues this rape case. They just need to feel like they've achieved something. Everybody around her is concerned about it, is making it about them. And how much of this is helpful? I mean, it is clear that Jenny Lester is not okay. I mean, she repeatedly says, I'm fine, when she is not fine, and it's clear that she's not fine, but in the circumstances, is it okay if we just let her not be fine? And I think that's a legitimate thing that gets brought up. Having these metaphorical scars, these traumas, also is not helped by a physical scar which was left by this attack on Jenny Lester. I mean, part of it was she was knocked unconscious and she has a scar on her forehead. And the ways that that gets involved in it, I mean, basically every time Jenny Lester looks in a mirror, which honestly is not very often in this film, but every time Jenny Lester looks in a mirror, she is touching that scar. And you know, a, a literalization uh, of the metaphorical scars, the emotional scars which she has. And yeah, I, I think that's well done. And I think the majority of this film is well done. I mean, I, I can't f 
fully get on board with it. There's a couple of issues which diminish it for me. Primarily, it is the character of the brother, played by Brit Michael Gordon. As I have said throughout the course of this review, he is always, always making it about himself. And in my opinion, he's not called out nearly enough for his attitude. He is allowed to get away with a lot of stuff, you know, making it about him, make, you know, mansplaining rape, essentially, which is not the right thing to do. And I think he should have been called out a lot more for his attitude. And also, there's a little bit of grandstanding at the end of the film. There's a little bit of speech making when you know we finally get into a courtroom. And as far as I'm concerned, courtrooms, particularly American courtrooms, are designed for that not to happen, for somebody to not just make a, an elaborate speech about their situation. Perry Mason doesn't happen in real life. And we kind of get that situation here with this perfectly written, perfectly performed speech on the witness stand, which just felt so false. It felt, it actually, it felt like the end of the trial of the Chicago 7. It felt like that Aaron Sorkin thing of the perfect speech at the perfect moment making the situation too perfect. So, yeah, a little bit too much grandstanding at the end, and the brother gets let off the hook far too much, in my opinion. So, I can't fully embrace this, but I do think this is an independent film available on streaming, which is definitely worth watching. So, for me, what she said is a very, very high meh. Coming attractions. It's actually a light week at the cinemas this week, since Universal have decided to push the release of the musical Cyrano to February 25th, due to the Omicron surge, and quite honestly, I don't think anything's going to be any better by February 25th, because our government are a bunch of absolute idiots. But that's what they've decided to do, so there's very, very little getting a cinematic release this week. But that doesn't mean there's nothing. One thing that I am eagerly anticipating is the new Pedro Almodovar film, Parallel Mothers, in which middle-aged, or in terms of pregnancy, middle-aged Penelope Cruz and a young woman, Milena Smith, give birth on the same day, and their lives start intertwining. It's a Pedro Almodovar film, so of course everybody's been raving about it. And it does seem to be a prestige piece, even though Spain did not submit it to the Oscars this year, which astonished me. But anyway, the film that Spain did submit, The Good Boss, made the 15-film longlist, so I guess we'll have to see how that goes, but countries sometimes do this. I mean, there is an obvious choice to be submitted to the international film category, and they don't take it. What the hell? But 
Anyway, a new Pedro Almodovar film is always something to celebrate in art house circles, so I will be checking that out. And at the complete other end of the spectrum is the new animated feature Sing 2, with a bunch of anthropomorphised animals singing pop songs of the day. And I believe this one's based around the music of U2, or at least features heavily the music of U2. I think Bono might even be in the voice cast of it. I am somewhat surprised this film even exists. I mean, it's one of those things that nobody asked for a sequel to Sing, as far as I'm concerned. Nobody particularly wanted a sequel to Sing. I didn't think Sing, the original film, did that much business when it first came out, but apparently it did well enough that we have a sequel to Sing. So what the hell, let's just go and watch Sing 2. But there is another animated film out at the cinema next week, which I am actually quite looking forward to. It's another one of those situations where a Japanese animation has been released in a very limited way with a handful of specialty screenings over the course of one weekend. In this case, the film is called Sing a Bit of Harmony. And I'm under the impression that it's a musical in which a optimistic and bubbly young student joins a new high school and starts spreading joy and sunshine all around this school, only for it to be revealed that she's actually an experimental AI. So... Yeah, that could be fun. And it's done by the same guy who did Patema Inverted. So a little bit of background, even though I wasn't the hugest fan of Patema Inverted. But it looks intriguing, so I will be checking that out. Although next week, the similar anime release is the new Mamoru Hosoda film, Bell, which I am very, very intrigued by because... That's on the eligible list for this year's animated feature competition and might well get on the list. So I definitely want to see Belle in two weeks' time, but this week I may as well see Sing a Bit of Harmony. There's not really a great deal being released onto Netflix this week. The only film that I'm somewhat interested in is the Taiwanese film The Falls which Taiwan did summit to this year's international feature race. And it's directed by the acclaimed director Chung Mong Hong, who has previously been submitted by Taiwan to the Oscars for his films Soul and A Sun, both of which were impressive in their own ways, although arguably too young. But yes... The Falls didn't actually make the 15-film long list as A Sun did last year, but it's still on the list. It follows a mother and daughter who are quarantined together during COVID and have to deal with all their family issues. So that seems like it might be a film of our times, but also seems like it could be rather intense and possibly even unpleasant. But yes, The Falls is on the list, but I don't think it's a high priority for me. And I think the time has come to draw a line under 
2021's releases. So I'm not going to pursue any films that released in 2021 apart from the two-handed American indie film The Great and Terrible Day of the Lord, which I have already downloaded onto my tablet. And I'm also interested in films which are technically 2021 films, Nine Days and The Humans. I think Nine Days, a metaphysical film about souls making an argument about why they should be born, has an outside chance of making it into my top 10 films of the year list. And The Humans is a mildly Oscar-basy film about a family gathering in a crumbling New York apartment for Thanksgiving, based on a Tony Award-winning play, the kind of film that should maybe get some Oscar love, but probably won't. So, yes, I'm wanting to check out those films, and also a couple of films released onto Amazon Prime Video this year. Obviously, I still want to check out Asghar Fahadi's film A Hero, which I just didn't have time for this week. And also George Clooney's latest directorial effort, The Tender Bar, based on a memoir of a boy growing up with his main father figure being his uncle, played in the film by Ben Affleck, who runs this bar. And Ben Affleck, somewhat surprisingly, got a Best Supporting Actor nomination at the Screen Actors Guild Awards, so... Possibly that's even a hint that he might get an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor. So, yeah, I do definitely now need to check out The Tender Bar, even though the film has not been getting amazing reviews. But it is nevertheless on the list. My Netflix priorities are all films that have been released in the new year or very soon before the new year. We have the Indonesian film Photocopier about how women are treated in a very conservative, very Muslim country like Indonesia. We have the stop-motion animated anthology film The House, which looks kind of fascinating. We have the sleazy, erotic thriller starring Alyssa Milano, Brazen, which I'm intrigued by. We have the Brazilian film Lully, in which a medical student, after an accident with an MRI machine, can start reading people's thoughts and uses it to her own advantage, both professional and romantic. So that could be cheesy, but could be fun. And there's also Munich Edge of War, based on a Robert Harris novel and starring Jeremy Irons as Neville Chamberlain in the lead up to the Second World War. So that could be cool as well. So that's the priorities as far as film watching goes. I have now actively started working on my top 10 films of the year show. Even though I haven't fully finalised it, I still do want to check out nine days before I finalise my list, but I'm working as much as I can with a non-final list. I also have my super secret side project, which I'm still actively working on as well, and is taking up a lot of my time. But hopefully there should be plenty of material becoming available to you in various different formats in the near future. So 
so lots and lots of stuff to get to. But a reminder that there were two yays in this particular episode. Belfast is an exceptional film. I fully anticipate it being one of my top 10 films of 2022. The perfect blending of halcyon youth and harsh reality. A perfect blending of nostalgia and criticism. It's a lovely, lovely film, and I really do recommend Belfast. And also Nightmare Alley, one of the most perfect modern-day film noirs, or film noirs made in the modern day, I think I've seen. This wasn't the film I anticipated it being, but I really, really loved the film it ended up being. A perfect con movie, a perfect film noir, with some real psychological depth to it. So Nightmare Alley is also a yay. And with that said, all that remains for me to say is this has been Yay Nay Omer, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. And I'll see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure. Ah!